So for me, the interest in bringing this into my work, it's more uh, self-discovery. I'm by no means an expert in any of this, but by pulling from Yoruba spirituality and culture and bringing that into my practice, it's almost like I'm publicly sharing my own learnings and my own experience. Welcome to Intention, a podcast presented by the Power Plant Contemporary Art Gallery, where we speak with artists about their art and practice. If you look at the objects that surround you, you quickly notice the ones that mean the world to you. Perhaps these objects hold a particular significance because they're related to a fond memory or some momentous occasion. It's amazing how no matter how big or small, these objects seem to emanate a sense of value maybe even power. The longer we reflect on these materials, the more we become aware of what philosopher Jane Bennett calls vibrant matter, an ecology of things which forms a massive network of human and non-human experience. Nigerian-Canadian artist Aluche has shaped an artistic practice using the objects he collects throughout his travels. Using diasporic debris, a term he coined to describe the artifacts, discarded materials, and found objects he collects from his travels across the Atlantic. He explores black being across various themes. These transformational objects are recast into sculpture, installation, performance, and photography, and their explorations invoke the artist's personal narratives and travels within a broader examination of black diasporic identities, popular culture, migration, and spiritual traditions. Across his practice, Aluche embraces the notion of blackness as divine, fluid, and unfixed, unbound by time, space, and geographies. Aluche, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Neil. Good to chat with you again. Yeah, absolutely. Now, I know you travel extensively, so uh, where are you now? And if you could tell me, of all the places you've traveled, is there one place that's your favorite? Right now, I'm I'm home in Toronto. I will be taking off shortly <laughs> in right. about ten days. Of all the places I've been, wow! I mean, I think Ivory Coast definitely mm-hmm. has been a place that I remember fondly, and I it always puts a smile on my face when I remember my time there. Is there a special quality to the Ivory Coast? Is it the scenery? The the people? I mean, all of those things. I was staying in Grand Bassam, which is a like a small, a very small beach town, an hour from Abidjan. It was just it was just a very simple way of life. I really, really enjoyed that. There was no hot water, so like all my showers were cold. Um, right. Were often fetched from a well, and I really just and then there was the beach. So like I would probably go bathe in, in the ocean every day, and then at nighttime, mm-hmm. you know, take a bath at night. But the showers were so important because it was so hot. It was hot, humid, and (laughs) I've never seen mosquitoes like they had in Grand (laughs) Assam. Bird size? (laughs) They were were big, but more so just aggressive. So the French actually started, when um, Ivory Coast was colonized, the Mm -hmm. French were actually set up in Grand Assam. But then they moved the capital to Abidjan because the mosquitoes Mm -hmm. were... Were that aggressive. Oh my goodness. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> Quite the reason to move capitals. Yeah. Your your artwork is centered around what you have called diasporic debris. 
Could you tell me how you came up with that term and, and what it means, essentially? Um, I mean, I did like how it sounded. <laughs> <laughs> it has a, a nice ring it to does, it. It does, yeah. <laughs> you know, and I want to go in the books as coining a term. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I think living here in, in North America, like diaspora is this word that, I, you know, it wasn't something that I was, it's not a word we use back home in Nigeria, but I realized that, you know, in how Black people here speak about their Blackness, diaspora is a term that, you know, has almost become synonymous with how Black folk here on this side of the world identify. So as mm-hmm. I started traveling and going to all of these places that people refer to as the, as the diaspora, I was like, well, I, I'm in diaspora. I'm African, but I'm here now, so I'm in diaspora. And all of these other places that I'm going to are diaspora to other people. Mm-hmm. So as I started gathering objects from these places, it just kind of made sense. A friend of mine, you know, as I was trying to find a way to describe what I was doing. And there's a Kenyan word called chokora, chokora mm-hmm. mapipa. And it's a term they use to people who collect things off the streets. But it's also a term that refers to like street kids who, you know, gather things off the street as well. So I was thinking about how to sort of take that term and mm-hmm. somehow change it to something in English that could be similar to how she described me and how she described the work that I was doing. So I think right. Chokoro actually means like the direct translation would be like scrap or like scrap picker. And from there, you know, I think two years after he came to me, I was like, oh, it's like traveling to collect junk <laughs> but how can we say this in a refined way <laughs> yeah no, that makes a lot of sense i think for me what i hear when I, I focus in on the debris word and a certain number of images comes to mind when i think of the black atlantic i think about the violences sometimes when i think of that word black atlantic and i think about catastrophe and i wonder if the debris is seen as the result of these catastrophic experiences that Black people have had in, in the Atlantic. And therefore, the objects that you collect in your art are sort of part of that, that lineage, that history. Yeah, definitely. I was always interested in, you know, giving voice or giving sort of like material representation to unacknowledged histories and peoples. But I wanted to do that with materials that but are they themselves considered to be discards and things that have been rejected or forgotten? So definitely I'm thinking mm-hmm. in that way. There's almost like a reclamation of these objects, but also, you know, objects I'm creating these talismans, but then these talismans as people. So like with my Eminado work, for instance, I consider each talisman to to be a person. Mm-hmm. So suddenly these lives that, you know, we don't know of or we've forgotten or acknowledge or you know i'm trying in my own way to acknowledge them because you you brought up emanato i want to maybe move to this question so i really admire how you integrate your yoruba heritage into your art it's, it's something that i think is just wonderful and so rich you've got this incredibly rich spirituality tradition storytelling in Yoruba that opens up so many possibilities to think about the role of art, its cultural and social significance, etc. How do your Yoruba beliefs guide and inform your your art making? 
where does that start? Or, or maybe you can't even find a, a particular point in time when you decided to bring that into your art. Maybe, maybe it's, it's not distinguishable, but I'm curious. I think for me, it was, there was a curiosity because like I was raised Catholic, right? Mm-hmm. So I, I mean, I don't practice Yoruba as a religion. Even Yoruba, the language, it's a thing that I've had to learn over time on my own. I think after moving here 22 years ago and maybe more recently in the last five years, I just found it interesting that back home in Nigeria, like so many of our, you know, spiritual practices are sort of set aside and considered to be, there's there's just like a negative um, connotation to a lot of it. And that Mm -hmm. piqued my interest because I was like, how could we have all of this? It's so rich. It's so complex. And yet <laughs> we, we think Christianity is the thing that you know, right. we have to ascribe to. I was just interested to learn, like, what is this thing that we ourselves as Yoruba people, as Nigerians, are choosing to set aside? But then we also live these sort of double lives where people will practice Yoruba spirituality behind closed doors, but in public are only Christian or only Muslim. And then there's those people who sort of have found a way to combine the two. Mm-hmm. So for me, the interest in bringing this into my work, it's more uh, self-discovery. I'm by no means an expert in any of this. But by pulling from Yoruba spirituality and culture and bringing that into my practice, it's almost like I'm publicly sharing my own learnings and my own experience. So, you know, I get people who practice Yoruba who come up to me and tell me about their journeys, like mostly African-Americans. Sometimes I find that I actually learn more from them than I have, despite being a Nigerian who grew up in, <laughs> in Nigeria. Yes, yeah. Right. So let's talk about the Emanado series, which consists of hundreds of these found objects we've been talking about. Is it fair to say most of them are made, have rubber? They contain some, some rubber element. Yes. Okay. And these objects, they respond to a lot of what we were just talking about, this sort of connection to amulets and talismans in the Yoruba tradition. And in turn, they become very deeply personal objects and emanate with this kind of power because of how we interpret their value, their histories, etc. Could you just Talk a little bit about Emanado and a bit of your process around finding these objects, whether they're, you stumble onto them or if they're gifted to you. Talk about how, how the series has evolved. Uh, so I first started the series, I mean, officially in 2018, but I think I had been collecting, I've always collected things. So I likely had enough to have started that body of work prior. But I think it was after my first trip to... North Preston, I found an object there. I came back in October 2018 from that trip, and I just started piecing some of the things I found there together and combining them with things I had collected over a couple years before then. And then in 2019, I, I started traveling back to Africa intentionally with the goal of collecting objects. And that's when I went to Kenya for the first time mm-hmm. and then <laughs> coined the term or at least spoke with the friend who called me the uh, Chokoro Mapipa, which inspired the words right. uh, diasporic debris. And then from right. that diasporic debris is where Eminado has been birthed. So I just visit 
places where blackness has taken root and mm-hmm. I walk through villages, I'm by the beach, I've been to plantations in North America. So lots of like historical sites, but just like everyday black life. You know, I'm walking mm-hmm. through Crown Heights, Bed-Stuy. I'm in D.C. at the like historical black colleges and universities. And I'm just collecting things that I'm drawn to. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't probably until like a year into this project that I was like, wow, all the things I'm naturally drawn to tend to be black. I'm not painting these objects. Um, it's either black rubber, black plastic. Sometimes there'll be metal accents as well. And then I, over time, I started infusing them with organic substrates, hair, leather, fiber. Yeah, so, I'm, I mean, I've been doing this for five years now, and I think mm-hmm. the interest and in following in the work is now at a place where I have people taking photos of things they find, and they want to send them to me. <laughs> right, yeah. I mean, sometimes they're great objects, so I will, you yeah. know, find a way to get them. But I think it's nice that the community that I that's being built you know, organically around this work is such that people want to participate. Let's talk about sort of your emergence, really, as an artist. You, you have this interesting background in that you didn't initially set out to be an artist. I remember you telling me that once. And you've not taken up, you know, formal training in art. You have this this background in entrepreneurship and, and marketing. Could you share how you came into your identity as an artist when that happened and, and how? <laughs> it's, it's funny because every time I get this question, I just think of my parents. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I've, I'd always, like I was that kid, I did really well in sciences. And I think like with biology, I really, and chemistry, I did really well because I enjoyed doing all the drawings, right? Mm-hmm. I really liked looking into the Petri dish and, you know, sketching the things that we saw. I did want to go to art school, like after high school. Oh, I, yeah, did? I did. Okay. I did. But I I think it was either geography or like visual arts that were put together in the same group in high schools. So I didn't, right. you know, my parents were like, well, if that's the option, then of course you're doing geography. And I really right. like geography too. You know, I think with the work that I'm doing, traveling around, there's something about the geography that does play a part in, I think, inspires my approach to how I source materials, where I want to go, and also the way I group objects that I find. Mm -hmm. But anyways, so no no portfolio in high school, which meant I couldn't apply (laughs) to an arts program um, in university. But fortunately, at McGill, they had, I think, four visual art classes, just like basic drawing and painting for teachers. So in the faculty of education. So I took those courses just as electives. So I got very, very minor like arts, you know, formal training. After I graduated from McGill, I went back to Nigeria for a year and a half. And I did, Mm -hmm. we had this thing called NYSC, which is the National Youth Service Corps. So you have to like work in the country for a year and do like two to three weeks of very volunteer very, work, yeah, kind volunteer of work but right. also like two to three weeks of like very basic like military training oh wow yeah okay. so you're in a camp for yeah two two to three weeks but i was able to do my my volunteer work at an art gallery mm. so i was working very closely with about 30 to 40 uh, nigerian artists and like putting their shows together like the day-to-day mm-hmm. life so I knew it was definitely something I, I still wanted to get into, but it wasn't until mm-hmm. 2015 
that I picked up um, a piece of charcoal and canvas that was actually given to me by one of the artists that I worked with in 2009. And mm-hmm. then I did my first charcoal drawings then, which was the Ori series that was actually sort of combining the Yoruba concept around Ori, the head. And I was also thinking about like head, you know, like the colloquial sexual term head and sort of fusing mm-hmm. this idea mm-hmm. of like uh, something physical with something spiritual and how those two things could be the same or could ultimately yeah, be one and the same thing or are both ways in which we can access our higher selves because you do need physical, the physical to access the spiritual and mm-hmm. the spiritual world can also ground you in the physical world. So that was my first like conscious. Of, yeah, yeah. 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 And sort of pulling from like Yoruba spirituality and realizing like, wow, this, this stuff is like, it's so deep. <laughs> it's so deep and it's really complex and mm-hmm. I find it way more interesting than like my Christian upbringing, you know, just in terms of what the values are. It also just felt to me like something like I felt like I had a greater say in how I, because my Ori is my Ori, you know, (laughs) and it's almost like the God lives within you. So I I felt like I had more agency to, you know, take charge of my, my life. So yeah, that's kind of where the whole interest in Yoruba as a reference point began for me. So I want to unpack a little bit about just being a, a working artist because you and I have had some conversations about that and, and what it means to be a black working artist in a place like Canada today. You talked about people reaching out and taking pictures and participating almost in your practice. And I really feel that that is connected to, you know, how I regard you as this artist who's used social media quite effectively to raise your profile, to connect with others in this art ecosystem. So I wondered, what are some of the skills that you observe among artists who are doing similar things in terms of building followers or, you know, people who are, who are helping you build out your, your artistic practice? What, what are some of those essential skills for someone who's trying to make their way in the art world today? What do, you, what do you think an artist needs today? I think a compelling narrative is probably mm. the most important thing. And then from there, you can build out that narrative. I actually gave a presentation to, because I was one of the faculty at the, the Wild Seed program that BLM offers. Right. I spoke about this, but I actually explained it using my experience as a marketing graduate. And I explained it using the five P's of marketing. So, you know, there's the product, which is, I guess, the art that you're, <laughs> you're proposing. Right, right. Then there's yeah. the place, um, which is, you know, where you're selling that product and how people can access the product. Where do people come to see your work? Where's the best place mm-hmm. to put your work? Then there's promotion. You know, how are you getting your work out there? What's the narrative you're building around the work to support it? And then there's people. Mm-hmm. And these are the people who are going to be consuming, you know, your output. Subconsciously, I was just always thinking about my work, like whatever I'm putting out from all of those different um, key points in marketing. Right. And it's like, even before I made something, I'm thinking about where would be the ideal place to show this work. I'm not only thinking, oh, this museum or that museum, but sometimes that's it. And it's because that museum has the right space for that work not just because of the prestige of the place. And then other times it's, you know, the best place to do this thing, at least the first iteration, 
could be in like an abandoned space here in Toronto, you know, where I'll put up something that isn't um, in collaboration with a gallery or a museum, but it's strictly for myself and for my community. Mm-hmm. And I did a few things like that. Like there was a room full of black boys in 2016 where myself and photographer Jar Gray, we photographed about 350 black men in the city, in the GTA. Our idea was to, to, to sort of subvert carding. So we would approach black men in the same way they would be approached by police officers, except we would be asking to take their photos. And a lot of them would decline because they're just like, I don't know who you are. So even the response we were getting from them was similar to how they would react in a case where they thought they were going to be carded. And then we would explain what we were actually doing. And then we mounted all of these photos in a very, it was called Blind Canvas Gallery. (laughs) And it was uh, like a small grassroots gallery um, close to Dundas West Station. And we printed all 350 images, plastered them all over the wall and on the building as well. And we did this during Nuit Blanche, like it was our own sort of like guerrilla thing. <laughs> right. Yeah. And the turnout was great. You know, these are like all three, I mean, maybe not all 350 guys came, but like at least 200 of them came and they all came with their friends, their families, their lovers. And then suddenly we're doing this thing that was a very small idea. But, you know, I thought carefully about how I wanted to do this community work, but also put it in a place that would allow community people to come to. But yeah, that's one of the ways I think, you know, I've thought about those P's of marketing and always making sure that, you know, all aspects of it need to be working together to build something that's, that really has the impact. I think that's what I was referring to. I, I, I can see the thoughtfulness in how you position your work. As you said, the settings in which you do the work. I'm thinking like your sculpture piece, Black Ark, right, which was a, a public art installation that was placed in uh i believe it was a park setting yeah ashbridge's bay yeah yeah but would would have had a very different function if it were in a gallery let's say yeah so yeah i really really admire that in how you bring that to your um your work yeah and we um with um black arc we actually like if you walk through the structure it actually took you on a path towards the lake and we had positioned it such that it was in a east-west alignment so it was always facing Africville in Nova Scotia Mm -hmm. which is where the work is about and then you know from there it's also looking towards Africa so all those things were very very intentional and like you know thought out as we you know as I was making that work and even now like you know Black Ark has shown at our Toronto indoors, you know, looks very different, you know, but it was very important that it was shown outdoors in a context that would then allow it to live, you know, in a different context thereafter. I want to return to your travels for a moment because I know that they're central to your artistic practice as we've discussed. I know you've also thought a lot about what it meant to make this decision to go all in, so to speak, in in terms of your artistic practice. You had to, and you've written about this, you've talked about this, you've had to make some key decisions around that, some sacrifices, uh, some risk-taking, financial and otherwise. I'm wondering when you travel and you're you're on the many residencies that you participate in and, and just your travels, what other risk are you seeing 
other Black artists taking in these spaces, in these contexts? You talked a little bit about your parents, right? And I think this is what you were alluding to, but this is insistence on solidity, on something that's reliable and seems feasible. But, you know, the decision to pursue a career in art takes quite another path. So I'm just wondering, are you having conversations with other artists when you travel about this risk-taking, this these kinds of decisions to practice art? Yeah, I mean, the first story that comes to mind for me, and I mean, risk is different for everyone, right? Right, right. But I met an artist while I was in Grand Bassam, and I think for her, the risk was um, starting a family, like having kids. Mm. And I think they were very aware of how it would dramatically change the amount of time they would have to, you know, be an artist. But it was something that they wanted. So Mm -hmm. our conversations were based on that you know like my risk is very different because i can get up and you know go at any time i don't have kids right um whereas for her she didn't have kids at the time but now she does and there's an honesty in how she shares her life as well and she's very clear about you know how having kids really limits time to rest limits time to create and sharing that vulnerability publicly i think you know I'm going to go back to the question you asked about um, how I view social media. And right. and I think right. there's just an honesty that I think some people enjoy seeing in an artist's practice or in an artist's sort of story. Not every artist is prepared to be that vulnerable, but I think that yeah. the vulnerability is something that I've made work about. And it's something that has helped to build like a following for my work, but also not just my work, but for my person as well. In particular, I'm thinking of the work in which you use the cowrie shells, you you bronze them, and you had a very elaborate process of traveling with these cowrie shells that collectively had a weight that either matched your own weight or approached your (laughs) own weight. Yeah, and I, I just find that you are constantly mining in a very personal way the risks that you're taking, the the challenges that you've encountered along the way as you develop your artistic practice, and you you very creatively share these through the works themselves, the the risks, the challenges, the hurdles, and the joys as well, right? Yeah. So it's it's not all it's not all negative and challenges. So yeah, I'm really interested in how you do that consistently. Yeah, and I think it's for me, it's like finding a way to insert my personal narratives into these sort of larger ideas around blackness, like bigger ideas around African spirituality. Because with the Cowrie Shell project, it's called um, The Value of My Dreams Will Not Drown Me. But like in reading about Yoruba spirituality, I learned there's a practice called Merin Dilongu, which means to like take four from 20. So it's basically called 16. And essentially what happens is 16 cowrie shells are tossed. And based on the configuration, there's like a reading. So I took that idea and I was like, well, I'm mm-hmm. taking charge of my own future, my destiny. And I'm going to make as many cowrie shells in bronze are as equivalent to my weight. But also I'm going to make the value of all of these shells. They'll be equivalent to line of credit that I took in 2016 to support my foreign to like full-time art practice. 
So I've found it's just so many incredible ways to sort of borrow from Yoruba culture. And also because I'm Yoruba, I feel like it's mine. It's, it's there for the taking. Yes, it's all yes. there for me. Um, and it's limitless. But it's always interesting when I find out something else and I'm like, wow, how does this or how can this be connected to my own lived experience as an artist, a Black artist? But then in the process, I'm also sort of educating other people about Yoruba spirituality. I want to talk about Plowing Liberty, which I've written about. Yes. <laughs> this is a, a, a series of, of sculptural works you created out of uh, discarded hockey sticks. And these were then fused with farming implements, which you collected in the U.S. and in Canada. And in that work, you take up the issue of Black labor and uh, white leisure as a, a sort of powerful dichotomy. And I wonder if you could speak to the process in creating those fused objects and their significance. I mean, play, I mean, that's, it all starts with being playful, you know? So for me, mm -hmm. I knew that I wanted to make work that it was about black labor in Canada, specifically in response to the anecdotes, stories, and what I observed when I was in Nova Scotia, in, in North Preston, Cherry Brook, and East Preston. And like, Ms. Myrna was a matriarch of that community. And she would always like invite me over for lunch and we would just talk. And she would tell me some crazy stories. And I was like, wow, this is all happening here in Canada, you know, two black people. Mm. But one of the things she really said to me that resonated was, about how her ancestors essentially dug their own graves because the land they were put on was just so rocky. They have huge boulders, huge rock formations scattered on that land. Um, so there's obviously no way anything could grow there. So that, that anecdote really sat with me. And I wasn't sure how I would make work about that, but it always just sat in my head. So Plowing Liberty came about, um, my neighbors had thrown out some hockey sticks and I was like, okay, I'm just going to grab these. I was on my bike. <laughs> <laughs> so it's me with like three hockey sticks in one hand on my bike. And then came home, put them in the shed. And then I realized that they were the same height approximately as like some other farm implements I'd been collecting. And then something just in that moment like went off in my head. I was like, oh my God, this is it. Like, that's it. I could hear her voice mm -hmm. in that moment. So that work was birthed from that, from her anecdote, but also just the experience of finding these objects. And um, almost like, look, I think with a lot of my work, I'm looking for patterns too. I never really force things. It's just like, it will come to right. me. This looks good with that. They fit together. And then I take that as a sign that it's something I should run with. Yeah. I'm just wondering about the process. So you've, you've brought these items together and now do you go in search of a way to tell the story of them being brought together? Or does it just spring into your mind at some point? I'm thinking of that dichotomy with uh, white leisure, black labor. Did that idea come to you as soon as you saw them brought together? I think the idea had was already there. Okay. But the, the desire to like, proceed with the idea or i guess maybe also just the confidence or knowing this is good like i was like this is good <laughs> <laughs> you, you had that sense that you had something yeah i was like, like no this yeah. this yeah. i i have to do and it was also around the time that 
Mocha had, I think, just come for a studio visit when they right. decided to include me in the triennial in 2021. So I didn't even know what I was going to make. I thought I was going to show Eminado with them. But then that aha moment happened maybe three weeks after I saw them. And I was like, okay, I'm going to make the first one. Reached out to my buddy Yorgo yeah. and we put this first one together. Biked it again to Mocha <laughs> and showed it to them. And they were like, yes, this, this is great. This is it. That's awesome. What are you working on now, Olushe? Is there anything that you'd like to share about what's forthcoming for you? Wow, there's a few things. Some things I can't say just yet because I'm waiting for <laughs> contracts. <laughs> <Alrighty>. <laughs> but, well, maybe in chronological order. So I'm showing at Armory in September, September 7th to 10th in New York with Southern Guild Gallery from Cape Town. Nice. I'll be showing my largest presentation of Eminado to date with them. Um, so I'm really excited about that. How many pieces? Uh, I think we're doing five reunions, which is 45. 45 okay. objects, yeah. It's my second fair in New York, but it's Armory, so it's like a big deal. <laughs> yeah. And then after that, I will be going back to Cape Town to work towards my solo with the gallery in November. I believe it opens November 23rd. So I'll be gone for a while. and. Mm-hmm. In March, I'm going to be showing at the Museum of African Diaspora in San Francisco. Wow. So those things I can say. <laughs> that's, that's exciting. Yeah. yeah. And I'm sure uh, more to come, yeah. which is amazing. Congratulations on, on that. Uh, Thank you. Success. Thank you. So on our show, we like to ask guests to pose a question, which we then ask subsequent guests. And so we, we had an artist on who asked this question, how would you like to be best remembered? Oh. <laughs> a, a little dark because you're, you're very much still with us, but hey. Hmm. I think the words that come to mind are like some of the things we touched on today, like playful, thoughtful. Yeah, yeah I, think, I think those two words, like just playful and thoughtful. And I think those are... You know, two things I try to infuse everything that I I do with. Like even when I'm exploring right. ideas that are like dark and like painful, there's always a way to make it accessible for everyone. You know, I don't mm-hmm. think everything that's that's been terrible has to be told in a way that only focuses on what's terrible. Um, I think mm-hmm. you can teach people through play. And that's something El Anatsui has said. It's like, art should be playful. There's a video of him on YouTube where he you know, really stresses that. Like, he's like, yes. what is art if you can't play, you know? <laughs> <laughs> and I like artists like that. You know, some of my favorite yeah. artists, you can tell they're playing. Like Mary Evans, she does paper cutouts. And they're short term. She'll do these huge, masterful, like, cutouts of Black people, like, in landscapes on museum walls. And they're only there for the show. You know, and, right. you know, and I think of like, um, Alicia Henry, who also does lots of like repetitive cutouts, leather, felt, and I think they're just making such meaningful work and it's so playful and yeah, I want to remember it as being playful and thoughtful. <laughs> and in turn, is there a question that you could think of that we could pose to, uh, one of our future guests? It can be about anything. Mm. It doesn't have to be about art it can be life in general i'm gonna say 
if there's two or three things you could ask for in, in this moment to like take your art career to where you want it to be. And I don't mean just, I don't mean success, you know, or like, you know, museum shows, but like even for yourself, like what mm -hmm. are those things that, you know, would give you the level of artistic or creative freedom? That's my That's question. That's a really nice question. <laughs> yeah. We'll see who gets that uh, question in, in the series. But until then, thank you so much for this conversation. I always enjoy speaking with you and I, I really appreciate you coming on the show. Thanks, Neil. Intention, presented by the Power Plant Contemporary Art Gallery, is made possible with the support of Canada Council for the Arts. We thank the diverse mix of Canadian contemporary artists for sharing more about their lives and work. This episode was hosted and created by Neil Price in collaboration with the Power Plant Contemporary Art Gallery team, Beverly Cheng, Daria Sposobna, and Zachary Skola Allison. This show was produced by the team at Edit Audio. This episode was edited, mixed, and mastered by Ali Sirwa. Our executive producer is Steph Colburn, and our production manager is Kathleen Speckert. Show music is by No Cliché and Mopawa Mumu.